Hey everybody out there, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in to all the details of the characters, concept, places, and things from that galaxy far, far away. I am one of your Mandalorian protectors, Mac, and I'm joined by my fellow clanmate, Ross. Mac, great to be back today. Great to have some fantastic topics coming up, but before we get into them, we have something even bigger to talk about. We do. It's December, isn't it? It is. As of today, it is December 2nd, if you're listening to this uh, as it goes live, and we are here today to start the second annual season of giving. Yay! Yay! Big celebration. We are starting off this week. We are giving off away a uh, great item, a great uh, Star Wars gift either for yourself or a family member so stick around till the end of the show and we will tell you all about it but before that we've got three exciting topics today okay so we've taken and been doing an episode of you know mandalorian lore every single episode in in honor of we the chapters have, yeah. coming out um and we sort of indulged ourselves and pretty much all of the topics are mandalorian based today Sorry. We did. We, we just couldn't help ourselves. Uh, some a little bit more vague than others, but we are going to start by talking about hyperspace and yes. what it takes to travel through that mysterious world? Realm. realm? Well, I, I would use the word realm. Yeah, okay. It seems like using realm when we're talking yeah. about different dimensions. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then we're also going to talk about Ahsoka Tano and the lightsabers that she's wielded over the years. Because she does have a couple, and we're going to talk about where they come from and uh, when and how she uses them. And then finally, Mac. We're going to be talking about Beskar, sometimes oh. known as Mandalorian oh. Iron, the wonderful material that kicks the entire events of the Mandalorian show into action. Yes, and Mac, you do love Beskar, so I know you're excited to talk about it, so let's make it happen. That's where the fun begins. How long before you can make the jump to light speed? Take a few moments to get the coordinates from the navicomputer. You kidding? The rate they're gaining? Traveling through hyperspace ain't like dust and crops, boy. Without precise calculations, we'd fly right through a star or bounce too close to a supernova and then it injured her real quick, wouldn't it? What's that flashing? We're losing it at Flicker Shield. Both trap yourselves in. I'm gonna make a jump to light speed. <laughs> Did it work? I wasn't expecting it to work. I, I think it worked. You know how they can be sometimes finicky. You know, they told me they fixed it. <laughs> they told I trusted them and they told me they fixed it. Uh, <laughs> Russ, what are we talking about? We're talking about hyperspace today. Yeah. Uh, Mac, this is a topic you have been pushing for a while, wanting to talk hyperspace. And it's like this week, I'm just trying to lobby some softballs. We're doing all <laughs> kinds of topics that Mac is excited about. So, Mac, we are talking about um, uh, something that's been around since the beginning, something that is in every bit of Star Wars, no matter what facet of character you like, they all have a uh, reason or a place right. to be, and they need hyperspace to get there. Now, it's something that isn't uh, talked about in a technical way a lot, but throughout the years, mm -hmm. we've seen other information like the fact that you can get pulled out of hyperspace, the fact that you can get tracked through hyperspace, hyperspace lanes. So there's lots of yeah. information and lore 
um, that isn't technical, that just has to do with this as a larger concept. Mm -hmm. But Mac, I think what you want to talk about today is hyperspace and how it works, how you enter it, how you exit it, and all that's in between. Yeah, I mean, basically what's happening is, is... All right, let's set the stage here. So yeah, tell me. Star Wars' primary genre, okay, yeah. and genres are all made up. You you can change them. Like, a lot of people call it science fantasy. Some people just call it a straight <laughs> fantasy because it's yeah. so entrenched with the quest and the noble knights and all that kind of stuff. But the primary one that most people will pin Star Wars to is what's called space opera. Mm-hmm. And a space opera means opera not in they sing, but in the fact of it's big and melodramatic. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, like, we're going from planets that are you know hundreds of light years away from each other thousands of light years away from each other right we are part of a vast gigantic culture of all these different planets and and stuff and we are gallivanting around this was all sort of designed and created by like um old serials and comic books like buck rogers and flash gordon and that's what george lucas was inspired by when he created star wars now When you have this genre, which is in many other places, in some ways, even though it's not as melodramatic like Star Trek has some of this going on, Mm -hmm. the Mass Effect video games have some of this going on, there's always a central question that defines like um, science fiction in these genres. If you're doing fantasy, it's how does your magic work? In science fiction, it's how do you move faster than light? Because when we know from our world how hard it is to get to the closest star, Alpha Centauri, and knowing that if we hooked up a ship with our current engines and set it out, it would take 600 years to get there. Well, you can't really have an adventure on a new planet every week if it takes 600 years to get between each planet. So how do we get there faster? And George Lucas pulled from a fairly common template, which is the idea of let's go to a different dimension and then we'll, when we pop out of that dimension, we'll be closer to where we wanted to be. So hyperspace as a concept, like you said, has been, imagine it's like a snowball going down the hill. It started off with George Lucas' work, oh, hyperspace. They, they punch into hyperspace and there's these cool stars that blur right towards you. It's really cool. <laughs> like, that's it. Over time, yep. that snowball has rolled down the mountain and more people have globbed things onto how that functions. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, so like by, you know, the time we get to episode, you know, uh, five, we're learning about, oh, the hyperspace drive can break because there's a specific component on the ship called the hyperdrive that does that and it can be broken. And then by the time we get to solo of like, and it needs fuel to work and like, we have been slowly building it up as a concept to the point that like movies like Last Jedi are sort of presuming you know a little bit about the mechanics of this thing to be able to use it as a plot device. Um, but you're right, they, the movies don't really want to dig into this. So we have to do all the stuff, especially books, technical manuals mm. that have built it up. But we do know, as kind of implied on the films, is hyperspace is a very blue place <laughs> that is in a different dimension from what we'll call real space or subspace. Yeah. And it's called subspace because, as the name hyper implies, it is, in theory, above normal space. And the reason that is is because it seems that time and space move faster and are smaller up there. Which is why if I punch it into hyperspace at Tatooine, in a day or two, I can arrive at Alderaan. Even though if I had flown there in subspace engines, it might have taken me years Mm. you know it's the idea that when i pop up into this realm i'm moving at such an insane speed that when i drop back out i will be you know 
time will have essentially been slowed as far as I'm concerned in real space. Yes. Now, we see examples of this throughout the films, you know, when we talk about, okay, the difference it takes to travel or not being able to travel. Like, you use the example of, uh, you know, Tatooine to Alderaan. Well, what about Tatooine to Coruscant, right? Mm -hmm. The reason they have to stop over on their way from Naboo to Tatooine is because their, you know, hyperdrive is damaged. Right. We're talking about episode one here, if that wasn't uh, obvious in this moment. You know, this has been all throughout. This isn't just a, a recent thing. The idea of, you know, this hyperdrive, you know, it's been it, an Empire Strikes Back. We obviously quoted that at the beginning, you know, how all kinds of hyperdrive issues, some uh, purposeful, some uh, mm -hmm. accidental. So, you know, trouble with your hyperdrive, trouble getting into hyperspace, not every ship having hyperspace. These have been uh, foils to, you know, different heroes and villains yeah. alike throughout Star Wars uh, in every medium. But as Max said, we really get the details in some of these technical manuals and some mm -hmm. of these guides. And it was nice to see in Solo, we got a little bit of love for kind of hyperdrive lore in there, too. Yes. Well, because, I mean, like you said, episode one is the first time we see one. And because it's Naboo and it's this handcrafted piece, it's like this like beautiful, like shined up, like aluminum and glass mural like mm -hmm. like there's no way to discern anything technical out of it at all um but we saw one which tells us like oh this is this is like the size of a like a, a dining table like it's not a small thing and the one we see in solo when they inject the fuel like we see oh this thing is like a column going up and down through the whole ship and it's you know the size of a refrigerator at minimum yeah like <laughs> and and the general implication is that a hyperdrive which Again, I'm glomming it all together now. Using coaxium, hyperfuel, essentially allows the ship to, in one burst, jump from normal sublight speeds to faster than light travel. Now, is that them sundering the, the barrier between the two and just popping up into hyperspace? Or is it when you get hype faster than light in the Star Wars universe, you automatically enter, like, the only place things can move faster than light is in hyperspace. So by when those stars streak by you and you accelerate to hyperspace instantly, what happens? We don't really know, and it's not really important. But the point of the matter is, once you punch it, you are punching the barrier and you are hopping into hyperspace. Mm -hmm. And that the hyperdrive allows you to do that. And if the hyperdrive is no longer engaged, so if it doesn't have any co coaxial to burn or whatnot, you'll drop out of hyperspace. Mm -hmm. So hyperspace is something you have to sort of like use energy to stay in yes so what can you tell me about the concept of hyperspace lanes because these are areas of hyperspace that are essentially uh graphed you know, charted they, they have been explored yes. and they have been basically proven safe so it's not like you can just say well okay it's exactly uh 800 kilometers away from me so if i just go into hyperspace in this direction i'll get there you have to make sure you don't crash into anything you have to make sure that you know you don't run into any other uh, mm -hmm. anomalies or planets or ships and so that's where this concept of hyperspace lanes comes in what can you tell us about that well as you said you crash through a planet or jump through a high supernova that could end your trip real quick it could Good, it could pull us so, some of new hope quotes. So again, pulling from um, the development, so mm -hmm. they established in old stuff, like stuff that was um, earlier Star Wars, especially like Knights of the Republican stuff. Was there was a time some thousands of years ago where there was the great hyperspace wars, where yes. people were basically expanding all these 
known safe routes through hyperspace. Because like you said, everything that has significant mass in our world, in the real space, casts a mass shadow into hyperspace. That if you hit it, it will yank you back down into real space. Basically, the more stuff there is in real space, the harder it is to stay in hyperspace. So if you get to a planet, you will drop out as you enter its mass shadow. Or if you're really unlucky and going really fast, you'll crash in and through it. You will come out of hyperspace in the mass of that planet, which means that you and the asteroid will occupy the same space for a heartbeat, which means you'll be very, very, very dead. <laughs> Um, and yeah. and can cause yes. problems. So we saw that in practicality in the Holdo maneuver in, you know, last Jedi. The entire mm -hmm. thing is she goes to hyperspace, but then hits the mass shadow of the supremacy, the large flagship. And instantly they want to occupy the same space. And we see a split second before it drops back to real space. We see the fractures on the supremacy start. We see that that mass of Holdo's ship is already descending back into real space, intersecting with stuff that's already there. And it's going to cause the whole thing to shatter into a thousand pieces as those mass have to get away from each other because they can't occupy the same space at the same time. So using that as an idea, through most of Star Wars history, and I mean like calendar history, not the story publication history, Yeah. Um, Hyperspace travel has been an inherently dangerous thing, and event they started out by, hey, these crazy people who would just take random hyperspace <laughs> jumps have figured out that this point to this point to this point to this point doesn't have anything in the way, which means that you can use that route to safely get from one place to the other. As you do that, these trade routes, like the Permian trade route, the Corellian run, they start to develop because everyone goes like, well, I'm going to use that. That's the safe thing. Anything else is risky. By the time you get to sort of the middle of Star Wars, like the Knights of the Old Republic era, you're starting to see that there have been hyperspace buoys placed all throughout the galaxy that allow you to sort of nav from point to point. So mm -hmm. you can get a little off the trade routes. The trade routes are still the safest path and the most well-worn, probably also at the time that they've been established, like the largest corridors. Like, you know, you could put 6,000 ships through there without them bumping into each other while they're traveling through hyperspace. That's where you get the idea of lanes. But now we're starting to get like, well, what if I want to get to Tatooine that is like near a, a trade route, but not really on one? Oh, well, you use this Navi kind of like exit ramps on like a highway. Right, You can get off to the destination you want, even though you get to use the main lane for most of the trip. By the time we enter Star Wars as we know it, we have nav computers. And nav computers can use the lanes, the buoys, and their own information stored in their computer banks to plot courses. And kind of essentially say, based on known data, there are no stars, there are no planets, there's no mass shadows between here and there. I should be able to plot a course. And again, as this stuff enters canon, we saw this very specifically as we make the, you know, the trip out of the Maw, out of mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, make the Kessel run. We, yeah. we design one that's only 12 parsecs long, which is the shortest route through there. But there's a lot of stuff they had to navigate around. And thanks to, you know, uh, L3, we found a new route that may or may not work any other time. It may have only worked that one time because things move in there. 
But the idea was they were able to enter hyperspace and escape that area without bumping into anything. Mm -hmm. And I would say that this sort of got established in canon in like the um, in Hair to the Empire, those books. There's a part where Luke's in his X-Wing flying through hyperspace and he gets pulled down out of hyperspace and he's in the middle of nowhere and he's trying to figure out how this happened and where he is. And we got what's called an interdictor star cruiser introduced. And interdictors are these star destroyers with these big four giant like spheres pushed through them. And what those do is they create an artificial uh, gravity. And so since there's an artificial gravity, your your safety systems in your thing say, oh, oh, I see a mass shadow coming out. I better drop you out of hyperspace before we intersect it. And it drops you out. And, of course, that's not there. It's here just to capture you because once you're in that gravity, your safety systems on board will not let you go to hyperspace because they're like, dude, you're going to crash into something. <laughs> so all of that, mm-hmm. that, that lore around the interdictor, that all originates from Air to the Empire. Air to the Empire was the first um, example of an interdictor cruiser. And we have used them. That has shown up in other places that's shown up in, like, like, I think Rebels mm-hmm. has an appearance yes. of one. Um, and, uh, and and again, it's something that's popping up because it's a very good plot device of, oh, you're in hyperspace, you think you're safe, yank. Mm-hmm. You get yanked out of it. It's and, very, very interesting, yeah. And again, Luke in his X-Wing, he's like, you're not escaping a Star Destroyer by yourself. Like, you know, it's a very dangerous situation. Yeah. It is. And, Man, it's crazy to think that that has been in Star Wars lore for so long now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like that's a, a newer thing, but it's been around for so, so long. Um, it, it's interesting because this week in The Mandalorian, you know, this week, as we said, we're doing three topics all related to it. Yeah. And here we see, a t- you know, something that we're kind of pulling a little bit more from last week's episode. Yeah. But we see, you know, a, a, a classroom of children learning about hyperspace routes and right. learning about intergalactic travel and it's just so fun to hear that popping up. Um, and this is the first time we've seen really a, a school in Star Wars outside of the Jedi Temple yeah, as well. So it's... And we already saw here in um, Mandalorian in, in Chapter 2, or Chapter 10, or, well, 10 technically, the the one on the ice planet. We, yeah. we yes. hear him talking about the fact of like, uh, hey, could you guys help me? Because otherwise I'm going to lurch this thing forward on like subspace. It's like, oh, that sounds real bad for you. <laughs> like... <laughs> We yeah. learn just how frustratingly slow subspace is. Um, we see that the Millennium Falcon in episode five is like going to have to like limp itself somewhere close because it can only stay in hyperspace for so long because of fuels and problems with the hyperdrive. It's like, how are they going to get there? Oh, the Lando system. We can get to the <laughs> Lando system. I mean, he's not a system. He's a person. But, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. all about trying to find ways to navigate because one of the things that makes hyperspace scary is you aren't, you know, here in the United States, we talk about flyover country. You know, <laughs> like if you go from New York to LA, there's a lot of America you cross over, but we'll never see any of, right? Well, that's the same for hyperspace. When you go from point to point, you're just avoiding mass shadows. You're not seeing all the things that are in between there. So if you get dropped out of hyperspace or your hyperspace drive, you know, your hyperdrive fails you in the middle of something. You could just be in the middle of nowhere with thousands upon thousands of light years in all directions Mm. of nothing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And we've seen that with Star Wars because in the end of the Clone Wars, that's sort of how they end up with the Star Destroyer that crashes on that moon is they've dropped out of hyperspace 
nowhere. That's why that takes so long for them to recover it because it could be anywhere in this massive search field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there, you know, there are definitely a lot of things in lore where it was like, oh, I dropped out of hyperspace and I was never heard from again <laughs> because yeah, it's a very dangerous place. And it's interesting, uh, no spoilers, but with the High Republic coming up, maybe we'll get more hyperspace lore. There's a lot of circulations about hyperspace and its ease of use as being one of the central tensions in the High Republic. And we'll see how that all shakes out in only like a month. I know. If you're uh, an early reader, there are about eight chapters of Light of the Jedi that have already been released. Worth giving that a plug. And mm. this is officially released. So this is not a... You know, if it, I have not read it, you I know Mac has not read it. Yeah, yeah we're right. we're definitely gonna stay unspoiled until we get closer. But if you're interested, there is some uh, some preview chapters up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing I said, because I don't think you'll indulge me with a a segment that's just a hyperdrive. Um, <laughs> Tell me about it. Well, the last thing I just want to say about hyperdrives are fairly bulky technology, and one of the things that really defines starships is their ability to have them. Mm-hmm. So there are things in Star Wars going back to the original, which is like, oh, it's, you know, it's a short range fighter. It couldn't have got here on its own. That's because we established right there and then that TIE fighters do not have their right. own hyperdrives. Um, but it, unless you have a TIE advanced, that does have its own hyperdrive so that Darth Vader can get to Empire Strikes Back. Um, <laughs> but like X-Wings have them, which makes them a, a higher level craft. We've seen in episode two. There are ways to augment your non-hyperdriven ship with a hyperdrive because we saw the hyperdrive ring for the uh, the Ada interceptors, yep. the um, you know the Jedi starfighters, um, and as we've already mentioned, it's apparently a fragile enough piece of technology, or at least the one in the Millennium Falcon seems to be like really really held together with mesh tape um, <laughs> because it it breaks all the time. It can be a little finicky, I think. Yeah. Well, and and. Another thing, again, again, little snippets of dialogue that we've turned into entire, like, passages of canon. (laughs) You know, there's the one he talks about in episode four of, like, hey, you know, like, mine's not some little bulk cruiser here. I've got one of those, you know, the big Corellian ones. You know, he's talking about the fact of he's comparing that his hyperdrive on the Millennium Falcon will get you 0.5 past light speed. So half faster than you need to just to get to hyperspace. So it's booking at like twice the speed in hyperspace that your just basic hyperdrive would. And he implies that like a Star Destroyer has that, not a ship my size. So it's like, (laughs) just imagine you have a cruise ship engine on a speedboat. Like that's kind of what we're doing here of just how ridiculously crammed into a light freighter that hyperdrive must be. Um, but I think it's fascinating. It's, it is. It's great. And, and like you said, I think we're going to have some nerding out about it as we go towards um, uh, the High Republic. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also important just to sort of talk about it and hopefully give people some information. Because like I said, it is becoming increasingly one of the few technologies in Star Wars that there is starting to be an expectation of you sort of know what's going on. Because, again, we're hanging more and more plots on hyperspace lanes and safe travel through hyperspace and why hyperspace is so much more important than subspace and hyperfuel and what that allows you or doesn't allow you to do if you're running on empty. And it's been kind of weird that, again, in the last, I'd say, 10 years, hyperspace went from some fun 
moments like, oh, well, there's gravity and there's interdictors to like, oh, yeah, one of these movies is going to hang two plot threads on hyperspace and how you can't be chased through it, hyperspace and how it you can destroy things if you hyperspace through something. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and last yeah. but not least, the fact that I, I just want to state it to just get it done with The Last Jedi. Hyperspace is a universal constant. You can have these drives that make you move faster through it. But the problem is hyperspace makes you move so fast that if the supremacy hyperspaces to get in front of the rebel fleet, they will have plenty of time to course correct and go left, right, or another direction. That is why the chase exists because of the mechanics of Star Wars in Last Jedi is they can't get ahead of them because there's no way to do a jump that short. We saw that in episode nine, establishing that like skip jumping is insanely mind bogglingly dangerous because we saw that they hyperspaced into planetary atmospheres. You don't want to be there because if you hit the rock, you hold a maneuver, you <laughs> you become the rock and you die. Yeah. So I just want to establish whether it's it, as a nerd who who's here, people are like, wow, they just hyperspace in front. Like, that's not how hyperspace works. Going here and getting my physics of, of Star Wars book and cracking <laughs> it open to hyperspace and talking about it. Like, hyperspace is so ridiculously fast, you can't make short jump. It is meant for interstellar distances. That's why every single starship has sublight engines, because once you get to a planetary system, to move in that planetary system, you're using... Again, still astronomically fast modes of travel, but slower than light, faster than light. Like, you know, I mean, it basically takes you a light second to get up to speed. And that's, you know, the entire length of like, for instance, like, I think our solar system is like seven light seconds. Yeah. Or something ridiculous like that. Like, it, it's... It all works. If you nerd out with me, you can find out that Star Wars is a place and some people who have science degrees figured all this stuff out. Uh-huh. And I uh-huh. am super excited and thank you for indulging me on it. It was a ton of fun. I learned a lot. I hope everybody listening learned a few things as well. Uh, and just to, you know, sort of see how big hyperspace is. Mm-hmm. It has touched so many different parts of Star Wars and I think it doesn't get the acknowledgement it deserves. All right. All right, let's move on to something else. Yes. Last warning, some major spoilers coming up for Chapter 13 of The Mandalorian. If you haven't seen Chapter 13 of The Mandalorian, um, A, do that. And B, uh, don't don't go on social media anywhere. Like, anywhere. Yeah, uh, it didn't Official last. content is ruining it. Yeah, it did. <laughs> official content made it till Monday, like they had been. But uh, fans did not make it till Monday before no. tweeting spoilers, I saw. Um 
So definitely, definitely, definitely dangerous out there on the internet. So one last fair warning, even though I'm sure it's not going to be an issue for anyone here. Uh, Today we are talking about Ahsoka's different lightsabers. Because Mm -hmm. Ahsoka has, throughout the course of her career as a Padawan and then a uh, defunct Padawan and then uh, something close to a Jedi Knight, uh, has had many different weapons that she's wielded. Uh, and different variations of the same weapons. So yes. that is what we're going to talk about uh, somewhat briefly here today. So, Mac, when we first see Ahsoka in 2008, the Clone Wars film, mm-hmm. and she has a single green lightsaber. It's sort right. of a very silver, round, cylindrical, like every lightsaber, right? But it's got sort of a top cap on it that is almost two-pronged, that has yeah. sort of like openings on either side, and it has a very thick pommel cap on the end uh so it is a very interesting it's very sleek in the middle but the two ends are bigger and bulkier well the interesting thing about it is so her first lightsaber channels two things that were existing in star wars at the time and i just want Mm -hmm. to set the stage of where this is coming from first off is we can assume this is not ahsoka's personal lightsaber that that doesn't come till later in her training that she starts trying to make her own blades we know that's a thing that all Jedi do. And we've seen in the Clone Wars that this can happen at a very young age. This So this first one she has in the Clone Wars is her first saber. Oh, it is? It is, okay. yeah. She makes I didn't know if that was established. Okay. Yeah, it is, it is. This is her established first saber. She will make a second trip to Ilum later, uh, but we'll talk about that. Because one of the things I think you'd notice about this is, from Ahsoka's background, we know that Plakun was an important part of her life. It's the yeah. Jedi who discovered her. Yes. Um, and so there's a part of me that looks at that lightsaber and goes, yeah, this is more traditional Jedi Council. This is like the Qui-Gons, the Plakuns. Like, it's, like you said, it's a simpler steel silver yeah. blade with, I guess for lack of a better term, little embellishment. It's just designed to be very functional. It is. Yeah, it's very, very simple. It's got... Um, a black act, a simple black activation switch right at the very top, leaving mm-hmm. plenty of room for hand grip in the middle. Some lightsabers have that activation switch right in the middle, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> and then a really big, heavy Whoa. end, and at the top, a couple of tiny little fins that stick out, um, sort of as like where a pseudo handguard would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very straightforward, very simple. And- and the other thing I want to mention is she's shown with one lightsaber to begin with. Yes. And this is a not even remotely unintentional nod to um, Starkiller, Galen Merrick, who is the star of Force Unleashed, which was hugely popular, like basically a year before this Clone Wars started going and established that Darth Vader teaches his apprentices the backwards blade style. So in... In Force Unleashed, Starkiller holds his blade in yes. his right hand, and it is generally arcing up along his back. Yes. And he does forward arcing motions as his lightsaber style. Yes. And then, essentially, when Ahsoka shows up and is doing the same thing, we learn, oh, no, Ahsoka fought that way. And when he trained his secret apprentice, that's him remembering his first apprentice. Which, A little bit of great... Well, uh, yeah. And to us as fans, that seems like, oh, well, that's just fan theory. I'm like, no, you have to remember, that game is being developed at the same time all the production art is being finished on Clone Wars. So that is coming right out of Lucasfilm, this idea of this connection between these two apprentices that are going to exist. Now, 
Of course, Ahsoka will survive into the Disney era. Starkiller will fall out into Legends. But it's still, I think, an important note to mention That's about her lightsabers. very, very interesting point, Mac. I really like that. You're right. They would have been coming out at the same time, which means they would have been in production together. And Lucasfilm obviously would have had a big hand in both. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very interesting. I love it. Well, and for a couple of years, while Ahsoka will only have one lightsaber for a while, you're right. You will see her switch back and forth between that sort of backhanded stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in season three, episode 10, when we see her with her second lightsaber for the first time, mm-hmm. this is where her pattern starts to change. But you know what? I went back and watched that episode last night. If you don't remember, mm-hmm. it's the one where Padme contacts uh, Mina Monteri. And mm-hmm. they try and have peace. And it's the one with the great bomb sweeper uh, transformer robots. Yes. Remember that one? Yes. So uh, it's a great episode. It's Ahsoka's first episode where she's wearing both sabers. And uh, what we learned from I one of the databank yeah. and ultimate visual guys is that she returned to Ilum for a second crystal. And her second saber is shorter. She uses it in her other hand as a different style. I think they're named in... All right, I'm going off the grid, but I believe they're called Shoto sabers. That's correct. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's referenced actually in the Star Wars data bank as well Oh, now. okay. So it is 100% in there. You're absolutely right. Uh, and so this is where Ahsoka has two lightsabers for the first time. And the second one very much looks like a mini scaled down version of her first. They're both green. They both have that same basic silver cylindrical look. Um, this one doesn't have as strong of pronounced forks or the extra fins at the top, but it's very, very similar. They very much look like they're meant to go together. However, even though we see them on her belt, she doesn't actually use them in the episode. It's just, it's already there. Yeah, it's kind of fun. And this is, in case you're not uh, realizing this or uh, don't know this, this is also the episode where all of the characters change outfits. There's an animation yeah. jump where a, where the assets change. So all of the characters look better and look more like their episode three counterparts. Anakin is wearing his sort of basic black and brown Jedi tunic. Ahsoka has changed outfits and gotten bigger as well as gotten her second lightsaber. So mm-hmm. this is very much moving into this is... the latter half of the show as well this is called an anime the mid-season upgrade the idea that like yes we're going to change the look because well yes you're watching a show going in real time the animation step had a break and they came back to draw all this stuff and said hey we can do better or we could do different yes and that's exactly what they did because that version of anakin and ahsoka will pretty much take us through the next couple of seasons and Ahsoka will keep her two green blades, uh, essentially, until she leaves the Jedi Order at the end of season five. Right. And just a quick meditation on this. Like, mm, please. This is um, kind of important because this is the first time we saw in moving Star Wars, like, them establish that, yeah, some Jedis have two blades. Like, yeah. that, that dual wielding is a thing in Star yeah. Wars. Because we first saw it being kind of canonized with Darth Maul, the idea of a double-bladed yeah. lightsaber, which was started with, like, Exar Kun in the comic books. Yeah. But and then, of course, Anakin fights with two lightsabers at, at the beginning of the Clone Wars mm-hmm. against Dooku. So that was kind of our first time getting to see in live two action ha- a Jedi use two sabers together. But this is our first time seeing a Jedi possess and generally carry. Right. The idea that this is a style, that this is a that some Jedi, this is their fighting form. And yeah. this is a very obvious reference to samurai who would generally have their three sword set. They would have mm-hmm. the katana which was their primary weapon. That's what you see in most movies. And that's what like Obi-Wan and Darth Vader in New Hope are fighting in a very samurai rigid katana style. And then a samurai would usually have their wakazashi, which would be a shorter blade for closer work if they were like in close quarters 
or occasionally would wield both swords. The shorter sword that's easier to handle in the offhand. Yeah. And the katana in the long hand. Yeah. And then we have, well, samurais have a tanto, which is a blade they usually keep on their back, which is just a, a very long knife. Jedis don't need that because lightsabers can be adjusted to be however long they need to be. Yeah. But um, but that's why we have the Shoto lightsaber. The Shoto lightsaber is essentially the wakazashi of huh. lightsabers. The idea of a shorter blade. And again, since the blades can change sizes because they're technology, we really only see Shotos with people who are wielding two yeah. blades at the same time. And it's interesting because the Clone Wars would also give us Ventress, who is a two-blade wielder, mm-hmm. but does not wield them in the same style. No, they're double. The, she is just she's just a maniac. Yeah. <laughs> An aggressive maniac, yes. So Ahsoka will use these sabers that we see here her get uh, halfway through season 3 until the end of season 5 when she gives them up when she leaves the Jedi Order and she gives them to Anakin. Mm-hmm. And basically she walks away and for a long period an indeterminate amount of time right now, but a long period of time she goes without her sabers. Well, we can definitely tell that it's been, I'm going to guess that that gap is at least a couple of months. Yeah. It might be as many, as short as like two or three, and as long as maybe like six. Because one thing we do notice is the costumes that were designed for the third mid-season upgrade do happen by the time we get to those episodes in the sense of like, uh, we see some refinements. We see some of the stuff we saw in animatics of yeah. like the lost episodes yeah. of what Anakin and, and you know, Obi-Wan, because at this point they are exactly in their clothes that they'll wear in episode three, you know, and it gets hairs a little bit even longer and he's kind of got that shag to it now. Um, And, and yeah, so Ahsoka has been out with out without her lightsabers and has apparently figured out life without them, which I have to imagine for a Jedi who this weapon is your life. That's got to be really hard to not go reaching for your magic light blade and not find it. Yeah. (laughs) It's a shame she didn't get to keep them. You know, it's like she didn't get a participation trophy. Well, the question is, like, you get, uh, you've paid the deposit, no, you know, well, here's my question is like, so when she goes out and like, she's finally away from the jet and she left the lightsabers, that was more, <laughs> more honoring. Right. But like, yeah, did she also have to like send her backpack and her current clothes back? Cause those are technically Jedi temple property. Is this like one of those, like you lose your badge and your gun kind of things? Or is this like, no, everything yeah. you own is like, it's like that scene from three amigos where they just come up and take all the stuff that you actually don't own <laughs> away from you. Yeah. She just had to slam it all down on Yoda's desk before she walked away. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. It, it, That's well, what you're saying? we have to remember that in, <laughs> at the time in Canon, when that happened, she is the lost 22nd, mm-hmm. only the 22nd person to willingly purposefully leave the Jedi order. Who's not on sabbatical, not just lost. Like, I am not going to stay with you anymore. I am leaving you. I quit you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's successful at it for a while. But eventually, uh, when she gets into some trouble on Kessel and figures out the location of Maul on Mandalore, she realizes that, no, she still has some work she needs to do. And she makes her way back to Anakin, who bestows her with almost her same lightsabers back. On the outside, they sure look the same. The, he, well, even on the outside, there's still like a little bit of like, do you polish those? Yeah, they look shinier. Fresh. They look yeah. fresh for sure. And she ignites them and realizes that he goes, I may have upgraded them. Yeah. Now, what is that talking about here? How do we have lightsaber crystals? So when Ahsoka uses these sabers, they're green. When she reignites them after she gets them back from Anakin, they've now turned blue. 
What is, how does that work? Do you, well, what are your theories? Well, until we did research for this, I thought they were very different lightsabers. I thought they were very much Anakin's design. And then when comparing them, I'm like, oh no, they're, they're not that different at all. Like they're, they're, they're hers. Mm-hmm. Like, I, cause I think when I first watched the episode, I'm like, Anakin got you new lightsabers. He built you his own, uh, okay. he built you replacements no, is that, what I yeah. thought. Right. So what I can probably ponder is one of two things, which we'll get into, which is especially important for her next set of lightsabers, um, is either A, those crystals are tied to you. And so as her connection to the force changes, maybe their colorization is bending and changing. Mm -hmm. We already know that lightsabers can change color because you can bleed the crystal, which causes them to go red. And we also know you can purify them, which causes them to go white. Right. So... Maybe there's an in-between state where – now, I'm very – I don't think it's canon anymore. But I was very fixated on – I like the idea that the lightsaber colors generally were a emblem of your expectations in the Order. That right. blue is the guardians. You are the protectors, defenders, right. that kind of thing. And that green was the consulars. You were the more thinking – you know, um, you were more the meditators, teachers, uh, negotiator kind of stuff, Right. And then, of course, there's bleed. But, like, so when I see her green go blue, that tells me that, like, yes, because in this point in Ahsoka's life, your job is to fight. Mm-hmm. Right? You 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 were on a destiny to become one of the wise old, you know, Jedi council. You were, your destiny was along the path of, like, a Yoda becoming, you know, a, a um, an extremely wise being. But because of Anakin's interference, because of your drumming out of the Order, and because of the life path the Cosmic Force has chosen for you... You are on a collision course with a duel with Maul. So now they're blue. Mm. It could be that. Or the other thing I could also see is we know Anakin is a psychopath about tinkering. Sure, sure. (laughs) So I could see that, like, yes, while the outside look exactly like Ahsoka, he swapped around, changed, and fixed, and refined absolutely everything inside of them. And the only reason the outsides don't get fixed is because he said, well, they won't really be her lightsabers if I do that. Because I just feel (laughs) that, like, Anakin might have been hoping for this day, but he's got that box ready to go. They're already done. It's not like he heard, oh, Ahsoka's coming back. Maybe I should go tune up her lightsabers. Like, it is my (laughs) headcanon that Anakin is obsessed with Ahsoka. It's one of the attachments that leads him to the dark side. He can't deal with her leaving. He can't deal with her. So in his brain, no, no, no. She's just gone for now. She'll come back. Of course she'll come back. I better keep her lightsabers in maintenance. Well, and to be fair, he was right. He was. I mean, to be fair, if that's if that's the route you're but going. What I'm saying yeah. is, like, Ahsoka left knowing she was never coming back. In fact, when she hands her the lightsabers, that whole thing is like Anakin going, like, we don't have to do this. And she's like, I do. Yeah. <laughs> like, there, there, Anakin. I know you don't get this, but mm-hmm. I gotta go. <laughs> and she does. And when she comes back and she gets these new blue sabers, well, new and improved blue sabers, right? Right. She uses them only for a very short amount of time. She makes her way to Mandalore. She fights Maul. She makes her way back off Mandalore. And then Order 66 happens. And one lightsaber is lost in the wreckage of the ship. Mm-hmm. And the other is left behind by her. So that way, anyone who finds it thinks she went down with the ship. Right. And that's the end of Ahsoka's original lightsabers. That's yeah. the end of their journey. The last time we see them is Vader picking one the the left one out from the yes. snow and going like oh i know what saber this is and yes. at that point when he turns it on it could be the color correction but it's really tough to tell if it's blue or white it's definitely like oh it's definitely vertebrae. blue you think, you think it so? looks white yeah i thought it looked a little white okay i mean it's definitely with that white background but no i mean i 
Okay. That's well, fine. We'll table that. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting theory. one. Okay, that's, that's interesting. I didn't even... I'm going to have to go back and check it out. Um, well, we, then Ahsoka goes for a little while without any lightsaber. She tries to live a normal life, tries to avoid the Empire. She's got a cool staff she's going to eventually upgrade to. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't work. So eventually she ends up being hunted down by an Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting story, one we're not going to get to talk about today. But she essentially uses the Force to pull the kyber crystals out of his saber mm-hmm. that had been, you know, these are crystals that have been bled and are turned red, and she is able to purify them by puring her light side energy back into it and ends up with the first pair of white kyber crystals that we've seen. Right, and so we end up, you end up with this just ghostly white silver blades. Yes, and we have now seen this, the first time we see it was in Rebels, in Uh, Mm -hmm. When we see Ahsoka, adult Ahsoka Fulcrum in Rebels, and we see her use these sabers a few times. We get to see her fight some Inquisitors, and we get to see her fantastic duel with her uh, her, uh, reintroduction to Vader. Mm -hmm. So we do get to see her use these white sabers a lot. Now, these sabers are very different than her original lightsaber handles. Instead of being a rounded, uh, you know, silver cylinder, they're more of a very long and thin, very traditional samurai type of hilt. More of a squared edged, rectangular shaped handle. They almost look, because of the patterns they have on the side of them, they have sort of matching diamond patterns like the diamonds Ahsoka has on either side of her forehead mm-hmm. you know matching to that um but it still invokes kind of that samurai feel um yeah, very minimal being... embellishments every other way um because yeah, like you're saying instead of being tubes these are more like a knife handle they yeah. are almost triangular very very rounded and blobbed out but like they're almost triangular yeah. with like one edge being a little thinner they and have flat sides edges. in and yes. rounded corners compared to being all round correct and the one that she carries in her main hand has got a fairly heavy curve to it yeah um and that's about the only place we see sort of traditional lightsabers towards the end because on her longer one we sort of see the ribbing mm-hmm. of like the um essentially where the heat distribution goes um and then we also see that on both lightsabers we've got the double belt clip we've got the com belt like clicking in belt clip and we also have the d-rings yeah so it really is a unique design compared to not only her original sabers but all the sabers we've seen in star wars they truly are some of the most interesting i mean the only other saber we've seen like it is the dark saber as far as handle goes yes uh even though the her white lightsabers have a more traditional only slighted slightly pointed blade whereas the dark saber has a very stiff point at the end it has a yeah it has a very sword blade too yeah whereas yeah sabers are sabers they just have sort of a point. yeah i gotta tell you this is one of the most interesting handle designs i think we see across anything across any medium of star wars and i think it's good that it is because i think you see two things from it like i said other than like the the belt clips and the little radiator fins like it doesn't look at anything like anything else that's been in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Maybe the emitters a little bit. But like what I like about it is it really is establishing from a very blunt visual style that Ahsoka isn't a Jedi anymore. Mm-hmm. She built weapons. Mm-hmm. Those weapons aren't a Jedi's lightsabers really in her mind anymore. You know what I mean? Absolutely. They're hers. That's why they have like the diamond pattern and stuff is like it, they, they look like. They are 
it, you just look at them and they, you know they are Ahsoka's sabers. Like they're specifically they tuned fit to her. her so well. And it's yes. funny to me they they strike out all of these resemblances, like the way she moves. You know, she just she almost she becomes this sort of thin line when she moves. She yes. sort of tucks her arms really tight to her sides, mm-hmm. and her legs don't really have a lot of like space between them. She just sort of almost glides across when she walks in this very sleek way. Um, adult Ahsoka does specifically. You're right. And they do a really great job of emulating it in live action now with Rosario Dawson, which is one of the reasons why we chose this topic today, because we get to see these same white lightsabers now in live action for the first time. Right. So, I mean, that's why we're talking about it this week is, oh my gosh, let's just talk about it a little bit. So Ahsoka <laughs> keeps these lightsabers, but we noticed that because she's in her mind, no longer part of the order and stuff she doesn't draw them as fast as a Jedi would. She has like, you know, we see at the end of rebels, she's got this stick. I was talking about this like staff, Mm -hmm. but we do see here. I mean, she still has them. (laughs) She's still very much able to fight with lightsabers when destiny calls, whether it's fighting Darth Vader or here, just systematically taking out a force of bad guys. Like, I think the one thing you see is the white is there to, again, uh, uh, emblematic of her non-affiliation with the Jedi. Mm-hmm. She's not light. Mm-hmm. She's not dark. She's not really gray. She's just sort of, she is a agent of the cosmic force, but she's she's agnostic, if you will. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I love how reserved she is with her blades. She The entire sequence at the beginning here of chapter 13 is blades come on, someone dies, blades go off. <laughs> Yeah, well, she's using the environment to her advantage. That's what this is. Right, And it, but it, it just shows, again, how, um, I guess, how removed from the Jedi Order, we as nerds who watched yeah. all the Clone Wars, how different it is from the general way they were fighting during the Clone Wars. It's sneaky. It's not yeah. up front. It's using the environment, not trying to push against it or reshape it. Yeah. It's, you know... Um, and it's in a weird way, it's kind of merciful. Like all the attacks on these people are very quick, very efficient, and it's over. There's yeah. no there's no malice, there's no heat of battle to them. It is yeah. just a systematic dismantling of the magistrate's forces. Yeah. Absolutely. In a way that we don't well, the good news is, or what I think is the good news about all this is we don't know necessarily how Ahsoka feels about the Jedi Order. I mean, right. she's contemplating taking on a Jedi Padawan, so she must consider herself capable of teaching right, right, the Jedi way. So it is very interesting to think about. She definitely, to me, feels like she's suggesting she is more of a Jedi than not, like she considers herself a Jedi. But it'll be interesting to see as we get more post-Ahsoka content, because we don't know. You know, she could have just had her fight with Vader last week with the way all of the time travel stuff is working. We don't know how much Ahsoka Uh, has grown in that time. Okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I mean, like, we we don't know that scene in Rebels. We don't even know if it takes place before this. Well, yeah, but doesn't Ahsoka come back with Ezra through the portal into like the year before, before all the Thrawn stuff. Cause she's back in our timeline by the time the, he and Thrawn disappear. The only time we see Ahsoka other than her fight with Vader in season two, 
Yeah. Right at the end of that, we see her walking into the bottom of the temple at the very end of that episode. We see her in the world between worlds. Right. And then we see her at the end of uh, Farewell, uh, the Rebels finale. And that's it. Okay. I'm not remembering it clearly. Yeah. Hmm. What are you thinking? You're thinking there's more? No, I I thought for sure in the world between worlds, like the last... We're gonna take that off off podcast because yeah, hey, hey, <laughs> yeah, hey, not relevant hey, now, I guess. R- Ross, what's your memory like? What's my memory like? Let's keep talking it out before we look it up on the Wikipedia to find out what it is. Like, uh, I, I'm not gonna yeah. do that because I think you're probably right. I'm yeah. you. Your Rebels rewatch is much more recent than mine. Oh so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure that I'm probably just misremembering. But I mean, you're right. She's no matter how you slice it, she's a very unstuck from time person. Right. But the one that we do clearly establish is by the time that the Battle of Endor is complete, we know that she's back on the galactic scene. So she's been around for the five, six years that that we've been seeing Mando. I say five, six years because, like, I don't know how how far after Endor, like you said, right. The shots at the end of of Rebels could have been happening last week before she came to this planet. We right, exactly. We don't know where everything fits, and eventually we will. I don't think this will be the show that will tell us that, but eventually right. we will learn more about her but journey it, and how she got to where she is. But I think the thing that we really see with this is, I think after her experiences with the world between world, the cosmic force calling her back from essentially death through that mechanism... I feel you're right that when she gets back, it's not so much that she's, oh, I'm back to being a Jedi, rah, rah, Jedi. But I think it's sort of like what we see a pensive kind of personality like Luke in, you know, episode eight, where he's like, the Jedi really screwed things up. And what they did wasn't all right. Mm -hmm. And I think Ahsoka, who has a more personal connection, can see the value in reestablishing the order and Mm -hmm. what is essential and what isn't Mm -hmm. essential. Absolutely. I could see her being a lot more akin to that. Well, also I think in her brain, she can never put green or blue crystals back in. She's always going to be apart from them. Even if she trains one, that person will be more Jedi than she is. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Just because of the really heavy journey she's been on. And that's the best part about it is we've only seen some of her journey. We've really only seen the beginning and the beginning of the middle. Of her journey. When you really look at it, there's so much more to go. And as long as Dave Filoni works for Lucasfilm, we will keep getting more about Ahsoka because Ahsoka is by far his favorite character. Just season it a little with Ahsoka. Just season everything with Ahsoka. It may be because he he had a pretty heavy hand in creating her. (laughs) Um, Might be why he's like, we're going to find this way in Rebels so that she's still, you know, youngish in Rebels and and, and even later because we're developing (laughs) this Mando show and I want it to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, Togrudas, they they, uh, age differently. That's true, too. Um, And and let's be honest, Ahsoka is a treat. I mean, I don't think I realize just how much I like Ahsoka until she pops back up. Like, when she pops back up at the finale of Clone Wars, I'm like, oh, yeah, I freaking love this character. And when Fulcrum reveals to be Ahsoka, I was like, this is great. Hey, you know... Rosario Dawson's been hired to play Ahsoka. That's what we hear. Oh, I wonder what the scene's going to be like. Do you think it's going to be a little tease? No, it's going to be Ahsoka having essentially an episode. And it was amazing. And it felt so good. Yeah. Because she's such a, she's like R2-D2. She's been a witness to so much of the important galactic history that there's a kind of kinship between the fans and her of the fact of like, she knows as much as we as nerds do over here in the universe because so many few characters have a bridge Mm -hmm. 
especially she Anakin. has touched Bail Organa in person. Right. Well, what a legend. It's it, it's it's just yeah. How much history she's been a direct yeah. witness to is makes her so unique in Star Wars. Yes. And it will be great to get more. We've come a long way from her lightsabers, but that's how excited we are to talk about it. Uh, one day in the near future, I'm sure we will do an entire Ahsoka show. And I also want to point out, you already mentioned it, of like, hey, if you like those Ahsoka lightsabers, th- those good replicas are coming out. Galaxy's Edge announced yeah, them you can stuff. Yeah, you can get Galaxy's Edge has her original ones now, her Rebels ones coming. Uh, there is also her original saber. Uh, there's the Black Series Force FX Elite whatever mm-hmm. uh, version <laughs> of it. So, And that one is cool. It's color changing. Ooh. You can make it blue-green or like a uh, like bluish-yellow. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little different. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, it's out there. Hey, if you want to do some role-playing, uh, cosplaying as Ahsoka, you, you got have, it. You just want to have those above your mantle and just say, those look nice? Mm-hmm. You, you can do that. They are pretty nice. They are pretty nice. They are pretty nice. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be smuggling you a pair back. <laughs> Ooh, it's very likely. All right. And with that, we're going to move on to something else. We want to take a pause from the show here to talk about something that's very important and something we've talked about before. The fact that Star Wars needs to be a place for everybody. That means that everybody needs to be welcome. Yeah. And, you know, luckily you and I were uh, both uh, brought up in a way and experienced life in a way that we feel pretty open uh, to all Mm -hmm. sorts of different people. But we definitely understand that there are a lot of people out there in different situations who maybe have some different opinions than us. And of course, there are times when differing opinions are perfectly great and valid. But when it comes to human rights, it's something that we believe should belong to every person. And so today, what we're to talk to you briefly about is a fundraiser that has been started by some other members of the Star Wars community, and we just want to take a minute and amplify it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, something we heard at the end of Last Jedi that Rose says is that we're going to win this war not by fighting what we hate, but by saving what we love. And Mm -hmm. what's great about fundraisers like this is we're trying to promote the positive things that this community can do for not just ourselves and Star Wars fans, but the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. And uh, it's fun to point out, too, hey, that's also the Jedi's philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people forget about that. But anyway, this uh, fundraiser, which you can find on GoFundMe, and if you search, it is titled Trans Rights Are Human Rights. This is the way. Mm-hmm. And this is a fundraiser that's been going on for a little while now. They've raised over 11000 Dollars at the time of recording this. Isn't that yeah. insane? $11,000. It's exciting, but it's still can go further. Mm-hmm. And that's so why we want to boost that voice and let you know about it so that you can support it. Absolutely. So please feel free to seek this out. We are going to share the links on our Twitter uh, as well in the coming weeks uh, to go along with our different Mandalorian segments that we're going to be doing. But uh, we also just want to point out why does this exist, right? Well, where this money is going is to the Trans Law Center to mm-hmm. help defend people who can't defend themselves against um, either physical attacks or discrimination right and so what we're trying to do here is just let you know that these things are very important to us Mm -hmm. and this is the kind of community that we will have here at star wars all in so let's just look at it this way 
We're Star Wars all in for a reason, because it's all in on Star Wars and everyone belongs. And this is all about following the way, which is to accept everyone just the way they are and support people's fights to be the people that they are. gathered in the Great Purge. It is good it is back with the tribe. Yes. A pauldron would be in order. Has your signet been revealed? Not yet. Soon. Let me weave you a little tale oh, okay. about very, very young Mac. Okay. Okay, so very, very young Mac is going on on his longest plane trip ever. Really the only first one he ever remembers, though his parents tell him he was on a plane as a baby. And he's got to pick an audiobook here at the Walden's bookstore to listen to <laughs> on this three-hour plane trip. And he's looking around, and all he sees is this audiobook of Star Wars Tales of the Jedi. I don't know what it is. My parents have said, we need to go. Is that one the one you want? And I don't really have a choice. I get it. And I'm listening to this book. And there's a certain part where there's a, a guy trying to get into this Jedi temple. And he finds that he can't seem to cut through the material that's holding the chains that's locking this up. Because those chains are made of Mandalorian iron. One of the <laughs> only materials known to be able to not be cut through for a lightsaber. And little Mac's brain exploded as he connected the dots of Mandalorian... That's what Boba Fett is. Does that mean you can't cut Boba Fett's armor with a lightsaber? My God. And that's where I started becoming Mandalorians being one of the axes in which my entire Star Wars galaxy revolves around. Because I was like, these guys are the only people that could stand up to Jedi. And they're not necessarily enemies of the Jedi, but there's these like rivals. Like they're prepared to fight Jedi at a moment's notice and Jedi don't really have enough to do with them. You're like, oh, I'll throw them off a cliff. They have jetpacks. Oh, well, I'll cut them in half. They can't be cut in half. Um, <laughs> all right, well, I'll lightsaber duel them. No, they use melee weapons. They don't use melee weapons. They stay really far away from you and shoot you with guns. <laughs> like, these people know what they're doing. Um, and I need to say that in Chapter 13, one of the giddiest moments of Disney's acquisition of Star Wars to me happened when... Ahsoka drops into the scene, she throws her lightsabers, and Din just doesn't know what to do, so he just locks his van braces in an X pattern of, like, up for guard, and they do their job, and the lightsaber he didn't know was coming is blocked, because Beskar, Mandalorian Iron, is one of the hardest, most powerful materials in all of Star Wars, and it can even block a lightsaber. Heck, we've built a whole series around it, around how valuable this material is. I know. And here we're building up to it, and now we have lightsaber blocking metal. So, so Beskar, which is the Mando-Ah name for it, that's the Mandalorian name for it. And Mandalorian mm -hmm. Iron is sort of its generic, you don't know what you're doing name mm -hmm. for it. Um, both in canon and legends now, I did find out there is a Mandalorian Iron in one of the books. Um 
is just a wonder substance. Um, it, it, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, trying to solve the problem that Star Wars constantly has to, especially in video games of, all right, so you got a, a weapon that cuts through anything. Yeah. Well, that's not going to work. Do you know how hard it is to make a video game, make that work? Do you know how hard it is to, to write a storyline where someone has a thing that cuts through anything and you can never take it away from them? Like, Think of how many stories in Clone Wars are, oh, I lost my lightsaber. Oh, you took my lightsaber. Oh, my lightsaber broke. You know, because why? Because again, you it's hard to contain a Jedi in a box when they can cut through any box. Yeah. Especially when yeah. episode one establishes like, oh, well, there's some really big bulk doors. You can't cut through those. No, you can't. But if you stick your lightsaber in there long enough, the friction will eventually melt the door apart. <laughs> so like... <laughs> It's time and friction, Mac. That's all it takes. It's the same reason Superman needs kryptonite, because just every once in a while you need to hit for him to not work. Yeah. And we are establishing firmly in canon that Mandalorian Iron Baskar is one of those. Blaster bolts can't punch through it. Lightsabers can't cut through it. And the only kind of downsides are it's really, really, really hard to work for. You have to you have to essentially be a Mandalorian armorer who has a magic, I don't know super forge to make this stuff. And the only other downside of Mandalorian iron is it's iron. So it can only be made into like plates and um, rigid materials. There's no way to sort of like the reason that Jango Fett gets beheaded is because the lightsaber is cutting underneath his helmet where he doesn't have Mandalorian iron, where he doesn't have Beskar. Yeah. Yeah. You can't completely coat yourself in it. You can't just like wrap yourself in a Beskar cocoon. No. Well, I mean, a cocoon. You could be in a Beskar ball. You'll probably suffocate in there, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, it's not very porous, is it? Uh, Now we're also beginning to see Beskar weapons, right? We have the whistling birds. Yes. We have, uh, well, not fiber blades, but fiber blades are sort of a similar uh, type of thing. You could make one out. You could make one out of Beskar. I don't think we've seen that yet. We can assume that the Darksaber's hilt is probably made of Beskar. I would imagine, yeah. Considering its nobility to the Mandalorian people. Yes. And uh, then this episode, we, we see some melee weapons made yes, of Beskar, a spear to be specific, which was beautiful because, again, Nerd Mac, who's losing his mind over the fact that we just block the lightsabers, go, oh, that Beskar spear, that's Chekhov's Beskar spear. We're going to fight a lightsaber duel with that later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does feel that way, doesn't it? Like it is being placed here. It will eventually allow us to duel. And then maybe even eventually be melted down into something else. Maybe some armor for uh, for our little friend here. Yeah. And, and again, it, m- the majority of Mandalorian armor is made with it. Not all of it is. I mean, we see with, you know, Din's, you know, cobbled together th- pieces. Some of those are probably not. Because the one thing we very much established with Beskar is Beskar is this gunmetal gray. This kind of brighter gunmetal color. And at least in its natural form, has these kind of ribbings, these waves running through it. Um, Because we see at the very, at chapter one of The Mandalorian, we sort of bring it back into canon. And we also bring in that that ice cream maker that's being run around with is actually a valuables tote. And we slide it open. We see Ignatz, Imperial Mm -hmm. Ignatz, very much like Nazi gold. We see the Imperial, (laughs) like Ignatz of Beskar. And that's what the child's entire bounty is based on. Yeah. Uh, and then we see, I had in my notes, I forgot. Then we see the, once he achieves those, he gets his own set of full Mando armor, you know, his, his own pieces that are just his, not cobbled together from 
other people's work or cobble together with what they could. Yes. This is a full traditional, full body suit of, um, you know, Beskar armor provided by the armor using an arc pulse generator, which is what subatomically superheats the metal so that it can be malleable. But it kind of states that like once it's been made like that, it's very, very hard to get it unmade like that. Mm, so, so it's very permanent type of thing. Well, you could melt it back into ignis, which, you know, there's a there's a darker part that you could you could definitely read if the Imperials, led by Moff Gideon, were behind the siege of Mandalore where they genocidally wiped out many of the people on the planet. Those Imperial Ignis that Gideon's envoy is giving to our Mandalorian hero, that could be Beskar that came from melting down all mm-hmm. these uh, scrap pieces of, of Beskar mm-hmm. we have on all these bodies around mm-hmm. us. I mean, you have to assume. I mean, even Paz Vizsla says as much that this is from the Purge. Right. This was stolen from Mandalore. And so, yeah, so you can take that. And then with the other thing, like I said, you can really make it that real capital N Nazi gold that he takes custody of. That this is, you know, much like most Nazi gold was aristocracies and people that were marginalized, their valuables being melted down into ignorance. I think this is Mando armor maybe melted down to ignorance. Yeah, it's a little dark. Well, again, everything around Moth Gideon is pretty dark. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true, isn't it? Um, So, I mean, that's sort of where we are. I mean, like I said, there have been tons of stuff in Legends, because, again, for Mm -hmm. the longest time, it was one of the only materials. Something else we don't know about Beskar is if it's unique to Mandalore or not. Yeah. Um, I think at this point, either if it was, it spread pretty far out through the galaxy now, or if not... You know, the members of the Watch, these people in these coverts all around the galaxy, they don't seem to be, I guess, surprised he has Beskar. They're impressed, but it's not like, oh, well, this is an unobtainable thing. How did you get it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, every Mando that we see essentially has some form of Beskar armor on. So I think a lot of it is just assuming that it's in my family, right? It's, It's part of my tradition. It's part of my heritage. And right. what we see here with Mando is we see this armor that is new and fresh. That's the thing that's right. unique about it, right? So my big question we I want to answer it, or I'd like to have answered is, how do you paint it? How do these colors, like if you join the Night Owls, how mm-hmm. do you end up with the blue tint to your armor? Like what kind of my, paint is sticking? My feeling is that you can paint it, but it's like if you paint stainless steel, where if it chips, it'll just peel right off, mm-hmm. and that shiny metal's right underneath there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, it's not and, dyed. It's just painted. Yeah, yeah. You're not staining or anodizing the metal. You're you're literally just slapping paint on there, yeah. and it holds there as well as whatever paint you put yeah. on there could. Yeah, I mean, we see when Cobb Vanth is wearing Boba Fett's armor, a lot of that paint has chipped and worn away. That's why I feel like when we see our Mandalorian here at the very beginning, some of those bronze pieces on him, I don't think are Beskar. I think that's oh yeah, because he's wearing the one like a, sh- a shore trooper pauldron, right? At the right, right, right. That's right. So it is like, a shore definitely, trooper. we know like his helmet looks like traditional Beskar. His chest plate, we know is Beskar. Right. But we don't know about every single piece he's wearing. Yes, absolutely. Right, and I think it, you, when we get more information about the watch and what it looks like for the warrior casts uh-huh. of Mandalore, what they are, because the only stuff we've seen so far is Death Watch. Right. And Death Watch is all like, oh, this is my granddad's armor, you know, that kind of stuff. Like this, right, this right, is right, right. 
again, going back to Samurai, this is the armor handed down through the family, and now we're wearing it because we're trying to bring back those days, is what Death Watch is. Yeah. I think The Watch, if that becomes a separate entity from the Death Watch we saw in Clone Wars, I think what you're going to see is like, yes, there's a warrior group that went out and they do hand down this armor. You know, hey, your foundling or apprentice might receive pieces of your armor when Mm -hmm. you find your own or when you die, your pieces are inherited by you know, you're, you gift them or inherit them to someone yeah. or in rare cases, cause the armor seems to be working. I wouldn't be surprised. It's a common practice. Then when a Mandalore dies and there is no inheritor, they melt down the armor for future foundlings. I would imagine them. that's the case. Yeah. I would imagine that. that Cause he leaves be... some of his Baskar for right. supporting foundlings. Right. And it does seem that that's what the armor is doing with all of that armor that was collected from, from... dead Mandalorians on Navarro. And I think at the end of the day, I think the one thing you're going to find about Mandalorians is there is one piece that you're not a true Mando until you have your Beskar piece of a helmet. Yeah. I think the helmet, especially the watch and the fact they never take it off, it seems like those things he's leaving for foundlings is helmets. Yes. Your first piece is the helmet you will never take off again. (laughs) Yeah, it does. You definitely get that feeling. And we get that. We can imply that just because Din has such a clean silver helmet when we first meet him compared to the rest of his armor. Right, exactly. So um, that that is his piece, the one he is taking care of. Yeah, so it's 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 an interesting material and while one other material has existed in Star Wars which is cortosis, which basically for lack of a better term, when the plasma field of a lightsaber hits it, it shorts it out which is why it can't cut through it because the second it touches it, it kind of just goes right through it because there's no lightsaber there yeah that's technically out of canon so right now there is only one material you can't cut through in canon and that is yeah beskar and what a fun thing it will be to see how our hero and other mandalorians in other aspects of star wars like in animation will use this to their advantage now that we've seen it kind of full force in star wars blocking a lightsaber Mm -hmm. uh you know i think we'll see more of that added in as we go and it's a fun topic. When the visual dictionary comes out for the Mandalorian, yes. I think we'll have a lot more to add to it, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I I I couldn't be happier to have it in Star Wars. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm so glad you're so happy about it. All right. I think I've probably again between hyperspace and this, you've probably indulged me enough. You want to wrap this it's one? It's been a lot of fun. Let's go wrap this one up. Yeah. That's another one. Another one we have completed. We have finished. We've reached the end. The credits are rolling. The main theme is playing. Another episode of Star Wars All In. Done. Another episode wrapped up neatly with a Beskar bow. Here we are. And it's a special episode, Mac. Not just because it's the 69th episode, which is funny. (laughs) It will never not be funny. Uh, 
It's also a special episode because you caught me off guard with that one. I wasn't expecting that. You got me off guard. Uh, Because it is the first episode of our second annual season of giving. The season of giving. Wookiee Life Day is almost upon us. It's back and it's better than ever. We are so excited. So this is week one, our very, very first week. So this episode is going to air on Wednesday, December 2nd. Mm -hmm. So if you're hearing this, um, you know, anytime between December 2nd and about five or six days after that, it is not too late. Head over to our Twitter and you will see we are giving away our very first item. And this year it is, drumroll please, Mac. That was good. That was good. It is a hardcover copy of Thrawn Alliance's Chaos Rising. Oh, that's really nice. So it's uh, one of the, you know, one of the regular editions with the blue edge pages. It's very, very nice. A first edition. It is a brand new copy of the book. I have not cracked it open. I ordered it. Um, I ordered myself two copies from Amazon. Um, This one is, it has a slight... um, what we'll call well, a slight abnormality on the hey, cover, but it is say, a uh, a, I, a perfectly great ready to go. I just want to say, it's yeah. perfectly fine. It's just yeah. his second copy is more perfecter. Yeah, exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, it's it is a great way to get a great book if you have not read it. We are going to give it away for free, free shipping, free everything, and it's really easy to get. Just go onto our Twitter, Star Wars All In, and all you'll have to do is retweet the tweet. And follow us. You'll see it when you get there. So it's Star Wars All In on Twitter. And we'll have this up there by about 8 a.m. at the latest on Tuesday, December 2nd, 8 a.m. Eastern. So you'll see it up there. I'm sorry, Wednesday the 2nd. That's okay. So basically from Wednesday the 2nd, we'll have that up for you guys to to look at, retweet, follow follow us. And then essentially the night of Monday the 7th is probably when we'll pick our winner. That's when we will pick our winner. We will announce that winner on next week's show. And then next week's show, we will announce the next item for the giveaway. So we will have an item to give away every week for at least the next four weeks. But let's be honest, it might even go a little bit longer than that. Uh, so be sure to check back each week with us. I say it's 2020. We we might, you know, time is weird here. We might forget. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Might even do multiple items a week. Who knows? The we, possibilities are endless. I'm pretty sure our Mando stuff is already going to go into 2021, even though it's not It's not going to end with just the episodes, <laughs> which for the record, again, we have another episode of Mando coming up. Oh, my gosh. Chapter 14. Oh, can't wait to see Can what that's going to be. Can you believe we'll already be on our 14th episode of the show? It's insane. Insane. Um, and we also have, um, I, if you've watched the Lego holiday special, I think you hopefully <laughs> enjoyed it. And uh, we'll yeah. be talking about that a little more close to Wookiee Life Day. Yes, yes. So if you've been waiting for us to do an episode, that will be happening. It's just going to happen a little bit closer to uh, to our universe. It's going to be the kind of climax of our season of giving. Yeah, we're going to come back to it uh, when we've had time to really soak it in because there is a lot there. Right. So, again, with all of that, the preview chapters we mentioned during the show of, uh, you know, High Republic, like, man... Star Wars is firing on all cylinders. It's I know. Great. We're going to get to the end of season of giving and we're going to have like three High Republic books coming out like within a month of each other, Crazy. including a new Claudia Gray book. Yes. I, I mean, it, I, how excited. I, I can't be any more excited. Well, stick it's with been that. so long since we've had a new Claudia Gray book. It's going to be good. It's going to be so good. Well, stick with us because it's going to be amazing. And I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until next Wednesday. May the force be with you.
This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2020.